This is the seventh in, in a series of studies in chapter 10. Of course, we've been studying the Gospel of John from the, from the very beginning, so uh, we're just going to move on to chapter 11 next time. But uh, when I said that this was the last uh, study in John chapter 10, I thought you guys were going to clap like you clapped uh, other times. Uh, <laughs> actually, it's been a tremendous study. Uh, there's so much to learn in this in this. 10th chapter of John, especially about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as our good shepherd, as, as the door of the sheep, as the son of the father who is blessed so much and has blessed us so much in his coming to be among us and with us and especially to die on our behalf and to die to bear the sins of the world. One thing is before Jesus, and that is the cross. For the last three chapters, chapters 8 through 10, Jesus has dealt with a confrontation with the Pharisees and the religionists. The religious leadership of Israel about the things that Jesus has said and the things that Jesus has done. It hasn't been an easy confrontation for the Pharisees because they've had to listen to Jesus say, you are of your father the devil because he was a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. And of course, the implication was that they were liars and murderers. He has, within the Gospels, mentioned to them that they were the blind leaders of the blind. And in John chapter 9, he heals a blind man who had been blind since birth to show that they themselves, the religious leaders, were blinder than the blind man had ever been when he was physically blind. He also took the time to let them know that they were deaf, that they couldn't hear. They did not hear what they should have heard. But the most important thing is that they did not see the things that he had done. And they did not acknowledge the credentials that belong to Jesus that revealed him to be the Messiah of Israel. They did not pursue the understanding that Jesus had been born of a virgin, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, that he had been born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 and certainly many, many other prophecies that pointed to the first coming of Jesus. But now this confrontation that, that ended with Jesus talking about himself being 
the one who had come from the Father as the good shepherd, who was, in his own words, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And, and that statement, I am, would ring in the ears of these leaders because they knew exactly what he was saying. I am is the name of God. But he backed everything that he said with, with, with everything he did. And still, they didn't believe. Yet, as I said last time, we could go all the way back to chapter 1, where in chapter 1, Jesus, had, uh, actually John, the apostle, in writing that prelude to, to the whole gospel, said, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. So even from the very beginning, we knew that this was going to happen. That there would be this kind of wholesale rejection of Jesus. But it was expected. Nonetheless, Jesus makes it very clear who he is. And we left off in verse 30 of John chapter 10. This now after two months of confrontation. And he's confronted again two months later in Jerusalem at the time of the feast of the dedication of Hanukkah. And I'll get to everything that we read last time, but I want to begin in verse 30 because he said, I and my father are one. And they knew exactly what he meant because in verse 31 it says, and the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now it was back at the end, near the end of chapter 8 that they picked up stones to stone him because he said, before Abraham was, I am. And again, testifying to the very fact that he was God in the flesh. They wanted to stone him then. And now two months later, at another feast, they take up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that, that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me. And I in him. So once again, in the time of the Feast of Dedication and Hanukkah, in, in December, Jesus was cornered by the religionists in the, in the porch of Solomon or Solomon's porch. And many of those same ones, were, I'm sure, were opposing him two months earlier because of his claims of being the Messiah and the I Am, but, the, but most importantly, by making clear to his opponents that they would know him as Messiah by his works. He claimed to be the door of the sheep as well as the, sheep, the shepherd of the sheep and this angered his critics even more. In fact, Jesus told them they didn't believe him because they weren't his sheep. If you go back for just a moment and, and, and look at what he says in, in verse 20, uh, 26, he says, but you believe me not because you are not of my sheep. 
as I said unto you. You're not of my sheep. It's, it's a very interesting construction of, of, a, of a statement. Because he says, you, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. I want you to notice that he doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. The perspective here is, is quite interesting and quite significant. You see, earlier on there in verse 24, they, they had come to him and they, they, they confronted him and they insisted that he tell them plainly, but they began with this really weird statement, how long dost thou make us to doubt? How long are you going to make us doubt you? That tells me already they don't want to believe. But nonetheless, they say, well, tell us plainly. If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah. Well, he told them plainly, but they still didn't believe. So it was not a lack of information, but it was as it was a lack of willingness on their part to believe. It wasn't a lack of information. Folks, I tell you right now that that is the problem that we are having as believers in Jesus Christ when we're telling people about Jesus, when we are witnessing Christ to people. It isn't a lack of information that we have the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. We can use all kinds of things like tracks and whatnot, and, and, and still, it comes down to the willingness of a person to believe. Now understand this, you're just called to, to witness and to testify. It's God who adds to the church. You don't save anybody, I don't save anybody, God saves everybody. Yeah. That's how it happens. But he does use us. So we have to continue on. Don't ever get discouraged to, to tell people about Jesus, especially in this season that we're entering in. It's a great time to do it. We've got all kinds of other things to help us out, you know, lights and trees and, you know, whatever else. We can always say, well, that's important, but it's not as important as this. It's important to know that Jesus is the light. Take it to Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, uh, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light wasn't the light of a star on top of a Christmas tree. It was the light of Jesus coming into this world. But it was not a lack of information as it was a lack of willingness on their part to believe. So what Jesus then goes on to do is he tells them. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I, and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave, them to me is greater, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now this is very significant. If you are a sheep, if you are one of God's sheep, if you are one of Christ's sheep, as we said last time, no one can take you out of his hand. But you need to be abiding in him, right? You need to be abiding in the Lord. You need to be dwelling in him, certainly. But here's something that is of utmost importance. I didn't share this last week. We'll start with this here now. It is imperative that the believer in Jesus Christ understand that they who are his sheep are always to be four things. We are, first of all, to be sensitive to the voice of the shepherd. We are to be sensitive to the voice of the shepherd. There it is right there in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. We are to be sensitive to the voice of the shepherd. Secondly, we are to be obedient to the leadership of the shepherd. That's the next phrase. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They follow me. So we are to be sensitive to the voice of the shepherd. We are to be obedient to the leadership of the shepherd. And then thirdly, we are to be confident in where the shepherd is leading them. We are to be confident in where the shepherd is leading us. That's the next phrase. And I give unto them what? Eternal life. That's verse 27. I'm sorry, 28. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Are you confident as a believer in Jesus Christ in where the shepherd is leading you? He's not leading us astray. He's not taking us to the slaughterhouse. Do you know why? Because he's already been to the slaughterhouse on our behalf. He's leading us to eternal life. He's leading us to heaven. He's leading us into his eternal kingdom. Are you confident in that? And thirdly, and fourthly, I should say, we are to be secure in the shepherd's loving hand and strong hand at at that. He says, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Now, that's, that's that's double strength there. That's better than the good hands people. The Father and the Son. They who are my sheep shall never, never, never perish. But that's nothing for us to gloat about, folks. That's that's something for us to realize that it humbles us. That he would love us that much. To care for us that much. When he stated that he and his father were one, there in verse 30, this prompted the reaction that we see in verse 31, that the Jews took up stones again to stone him, because they understood one thing, that Jesus was claiming to be God by stating that he was one in essence, in nature, in substance, in being, in power, and in glory with the Father. And I explained last week how that one little word for one which is the word hen in Greek, H-E-N, is not the the same as the word heis, H-E-I-S, which means one in number, like one. Therefore, Jesus did not say, I and the Father are the same person. No, he said, I and the Father are one. One in essence, one in substance, one in nature. One in mind, one in spirit. And... That will come again into play in just a little bit, and we'll get to that in a moment. But now his response to them picking up stones. In verse 32, Jesus said, Many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of these works do you stone me? In other words, what he was saying to them was, So for which of the good works I've showed you are you stoning me? Are you stoning me for giving sight to a blind man? Are you, are you stoning me for healing a lame man? Are, are you stoning me for cleansing lepers, for raising the dead, for casting out evil spirits? Are you stoning me for making the speechless speak, for making the deaf to hear? Or maybe you're stoning me for feeding the hungry multitudes. For which of them are you stoning me? <laughs> and listen how gracious his, his detractors are. I mean, they say this, uh, for, for a good work we stone thee not. Well, thanks a lot. 
for a good work, we, we, we stone thee not. They bypassed the very credentials given in Scripture belonging to the Messiah just so that they could stone Jesus for blasphemy. Everything Jesus did, only Jesus could do. Because he was in fact the Messiah of Israel. He was the anointed one of Israel. And the scriptures all would have pointed directly to the one who could do all of these things. But they weren't going to stone him for those things. They didn't even really realize. They weren't even looking. This is what makes them blind. And this is what makes them deaf. They said, no, we're stoning you for blasphemy. Why? Because they saw Jesus just as a man in their minds. But a man who made the outrageous claim, at least to them, of being God, equal in essence with the Father. If Jesus had just said, well, I, I am God. I, I, I'm, I'm God. In other words, I'm the one, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm God. In other words, I and my Father are one. We're, I'm, I'm just, I'm Him. Just as it's, as it's misinterpreted today by by oneness and apostolics who, who, who would say that there's no trinity but that there's just one God. And Father, the Father's the Son, the Son is the Father, the Father's the Spirit, the Spirit's the Father, the Spirit's the Son, the Son's the You understand that, right? If, that's what, if that was, is what he was saying, what would they have done with him? Well, they probably would have stoned him or they would have thrown him out there with a the demon-possessed people who were living out in the rocks and stones. But with Jesus it was different because he spoke with the authority of someone who had come from the Father. He, 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 he did things that no one else could ever do. That proved the very fact that he was in fact one with the Father. That he had always been and that he would ever be one with the Father. So what this was revealing, if we look at it in context to everything that we've studied so far, what this revealed was that instead of being compliant sheep, speaking of the religious leaders, going back to the beginning of chapter, of chapter 10, where he talks about a sheepfold, and we said that that first sheepfold that he talked about was, was really symbolic of Israel. He had come unto his own. He came first to the lost sheep of Israel, the scriptures tell us. Yet later on, he talks about a flock. You know, the fold was the, 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 large, the larger area, but the flock was those who were following him. Big difference. So what this was all revealing was that instead of being compliant sheep, as they should have been, and recognize that he was the Messiah, they remained rebellious goats, continuing to butt heads like stubborn nanny goats who aren't getting their way. And what angered them to no end was that Jesus used language no one else but God should use, and he accepted worship which should be received by no one else but God. Taking that which rightly belongs to God. I mean, do the scriptures not say in Exodus 34, 14, for thou shalt worship no other God? For the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Yet the scriptures are very clear. That the Father has appointed his Son. The Lord has said to my Lord. In the book of Psalms. David, now speaking prophetically in that particular sense of what God was saying about his only begotten Son. 
So were his claims then accurate? <clears throat> were his claims uh, truthful and faithful? In other words, the claims of Jesus? Because it comes down to this, as it has always come down to in modern times, Jesus was either God manifest in the flesh, or else he was a gross deceiver, the greatest deceiver that's ever lived. How many people would Jesus have deceived by now? If he was not the Son of God, if he was not God the Son, if he was not the Messiah of Israel. Uh, he could have also been a person with an unbalanced or demonic possessed mind, which he had already been accused of, of having and, and what he had been accused of being. We talked about that recently. But what was the truth? The truth was that if Jesus did the things that he did and said the things that he said in the way that he said them, then he was in fact God. Jesus was man in all perfection and completion, but he was also all God in perfection. That is the difference between Jesus and everybody else that's ever lived that's ever been. As the great 20th century preacher Harry Ironside put it about Jesus, he said, he is, he is as truly man as though he had never been God and as truly God as though he had never been man or had never become man. Kind of an interesting statement, isn't it? As truly man as though he had never been God and as truly God as though he had never become man. Yet he was man and he was God. No one else could claim that but Jesus. And Jesus' response reveals his coming down to their level to introduce the kind of argument that the Pharisees were familiar with. Go to verse 34 now of John chapter 10 because he uses an argument that is, I mean, it, it could be very confusing to some people. In fact, it is confusing to some cults. When he says in verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemous, because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not, but if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Now, while Jesus' statement could be very confusing, let's see if we can clear it up biblically. This is one of those passages here in verse 34. It is one of those passages that people like the Mormons or those who would consider themselves to be little gods, as is often taught in, in the word of faith circles, use as proof texts. They'll use this as a proof text. The Mormons who believe that they can be gods one day and have their own planet to populate and rule over. That's what they believe. Or those who claim authority and anointing to speak things into existence as little gods. I've heard some of these preachers say very clearly, well, you, we're little gods. The Bible says so. So how do we reconcile this? Because we know one thing, there's only one God. And we ain't him. Pardon my English. 
the one place that I want you to go immediately to and the one place they also go to to add to their proof texts is Psalm 82. So let's go there. Psalm 82. Now it's a, a relatively short psalm. Interesting how it begins. It says, God, standing in, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty, judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly? That's verses 1 and 2. Uh, we're not going to just jump down to verse 6. But, but that sets the stage here for this, this particular uh, uh, psalm. God speaks, and he says, he judges, judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly? Okay, with that in mind, you go to Psalm 82 in verse 6, and it says, I have said you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Now, instead of going to verses 1 and 2, let's just go to this verse 6 and say, see, you're gods. And you're the children of the Most High. And then they go off to some other place. But let me, let me ask you to, to do this. Go to the next verse. Because in the next verse, there would read, but you shall die like men. Now the context becomes a little more clear. It becomes clear because now you go, you go back to the beginning of the, of the chapter and you realize, wow, this was not a good verse for anybody who calls himself a god. You shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. God is speaking to those who are judging unjustly. And then he has to say in verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth. The psalmist says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Why? Because there's only one God who truly judges righteously. So if that isn't clear enough, I want you to remember this. If you go back to John 10, what did Jesus say? Is it not written in your law? Oh, we must go to the law, not the Psalms, to understand Jesus' argument. So turn, if you will, to the law. Let's go to Exodus chapter 22. And this is where all that other stuff will become more clear. Exodus 22, verse 7, it says, and by the way, this is just, these are just laws or statutes that were given to uh, add to the, the, the Ten Commandments that were given to the people uh, through Moses who went up to the mountain to receive them from God. If a man shall deliver unto his neighbor, in other words, these are, these are the commentaries of how we understand the Ten. But he says, if a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff to keep and it be stolen out of a man's house, if the thief be found, let him pay double. If the thief be not found, then the master of the house shall be brought unto the judges. You'll, you'll need to circle or underline the word judges there. To see whether he has put his hand unto his neighbor's goods. For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiment, or for any manner of lost thing, which another challenges to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges. You underline that word again, judges. And whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. So now, with this in mind, the, the word judges here in this passage is the word, it is the Hebrew word Elohim. Now some of you may say, hey, I know that word, Elohim. It is a word that is applied to God. And if you know anything about the Hebrew language, you know that the, 
that the suffix I am at the end of a, of, a, of a statement, a word, or a term is plural. Elohim. Now, it is applied to God, yes. And consider, if you will, that the Lord, as we talked about last week when we were dealing with I and the Father are one, one in nature, that one is a composite unity. As we said, the the symbol for Israel today, one of the modern symbols for Israel today is actually Joshua and Caleb carrying a large cluster of grapes but that cluster of grapes is Israel. It's, 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 it's one, but it's a composite one. It's not just one big grape. It's, 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 it's many grapes, but it's considered as one because it's to, held together as one. I take you back to the book of Genesis when we hear God say, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Well, who is us and our but one God in three personalities that we know are three personalities because there is a person mentioned named the Father and we know that he's God. We know in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, of course, that there is a person named the Son and we're told that he's God. And then we know that there's another person mentioned who is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And for example, in Acts chapter 5, it is mentioned there that he is God, yet we know that there's only one God. So you, do you see the importance of understanding God as a whole, yet God is only one, but in those personalities, the three in one. And there's many, many pictures of that throughout all of Scripture. We're not going to take the time to go through that. But the point is this, that the word that is used for the judges here is the same word Elohim, and it is, of course, Uh, translated here referring to human magistrates or judges. It is significant to note that the judges in Israel represented God before the people, having power over life and death depending on the sentence. They were handing out God's judgment and punishment to the people for their actions, and thus they were called Elohim. They were not literally God, but acting in his place representing him before the people as human judges. Judges today bear a tremendous, uh, tremendous responsibility to judge rightly. Now, nowadays in, in our judge, justice system, there, there's a lot of problems with it, primarily because of the judges that, that are selected for one thing or another. But it doesn't take away the very fact that God is going to judge judges based upon how they judge. If they judge unlawfully or if they if if they judge I should say unjustly God's going to judge them that's what the scriptures tell us so I said all of that to say that what the Lord Jesus is doing here in this particular text here in John when he says if he called them gods or is it not written in your law I said you are gods if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken and, and they knew what he was talking about. He's talking about the judges. So if, he's, if he did that, why are you saying of whom the Father is sanctified and sent into the world that you're a blasphemer? Because All because I said I am the Son of God. So what the Lord is doing here was arguing from the lesser to the greater. He was arguing from the earthly judges to the judge over all the earth, which is Jesus himself. Jesus himself. 
So if they call these earthly men gods, how much more should Jesus be called God because he, he was not only sanctified to come and do what he did, but because of the things that he did. This is the reason why he goes on to talk about the works. So you look at the testimony that Jesus left them. There is no denying that he is God's, and that's simply based on his works. There's no denying that he is God. So, uh, so I hope that that clears up a little bit for us the issue that Jesus is God and we're not. But in verse 37, 38, as I mentioned, the Lord refers to the Jews or refers the Jews back to his works. So in verses 37 and 38, if I do not the works of my father, believe me not. Now, isn't that, now that's a pretty clear statement, isn't it? We can all understand that. What is Jesus saying? If I don't do the works of my father, then don't believe me. And if you don't believe me, it's okay, because I didn't do the works. If somebody come and say, comes and says, I'm the Messiah, but they don't do the works of a Messiah, then don't believe him. So he's putting himself right out in front of these guys, and he says, if I do not the works of my father, believe me not, but if I do, if I do those works, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. So you see what the Lord was saying to this mob of critics in effect was if I do the works of my father then though you may not be convinced by what I say be convinced by what I do. Because nobody else can do them. Though you resist the evidence of my words yield to the evidence of my works. In this, learn to know and believe that I and my Father are indeed one, he in me and I in him, and that in claiming to be his son, I speak no blasphemy. Who's correct here? Jesus. Their argument is blown out of the water. So this is the indwelling presence now of each in the other. Jesus is one with the Father, and the Father is one with him. Notice that I didn't say Jesus is the Father and the Father is Jesus. No. That's already, that's been proven false. Jesus said, I am one in essence, in substance, in being, in nature, in power, in glory, in mind, and in spirit with the Father. They are of one mind and spirit, one being, one nature, one, pur one purpose, and one work. In fact, the Apostle Paul makes it even, even more simply to understand. He put it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. He said, For in him, Jesus Christ, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily in him. All the fullness of the Godhead. Well, what's the Godhead? It's the three in one. All the fullness of of the Father and the Son are in the are, are in uh, the Father and the Spirit are in the Son. The fullness of the Godhead was on Jesus Christ. And so the works of Jesus prove the indwelling presence of God in him and he in God. But this is precisely the claim that the Pharisees and, and all the religious leaders of Israel rejected. 
So even in, 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 uh, in this passage that is yet to come that I'm going to read to you, most of us know the statement that's made in John chapter uh, 14, verse 6. We all should know as believers what Jesus said there. He was actually speaking directly to Thomas. And, and he said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, most of the time we stop there. And then we just, you know, kind of say, yeah, praise the Lord. I mean, he is the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only life. But remember, he's speaking to one of his disciples. And he goes on to say this. If you had known me. Now, folks, he's not talking to a Pharisee. He's not talking to a scribe. He's talking to a disciple. He says, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. And now another disciple chimes in, Philip. And Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. In other words, it's sufficient for us. Show us the Father. Now, I tell you what, if I'd been Jesus, which, you know, thankfully I wasn't and not, and none of you are either, so understand that, but if I had been, man, back then, I'd have slapped them both, man. Silly. <laughs> kind of like the Three Stooges thing, you know. I'd have slapped them. Well, you know, I said, where, where have you been three and a half years? What have you been listening to? Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He's not talking to a Pharisee. He's talking to one of his disciples. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Whoa, there's that question, there's that statement again. Jesus now having to tell his own disciples that the Father is in him and, the, and he is in the Father. He said, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but of the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. It's the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So realize that we, even we as believers can get to a point in our lives where we're, you know, we can listen to things and just go off merrily, merrily along, just kind of going on, and, and, and we're missing things if we're not listening. If we're not paying attention, if we're not opening our eyes to the truths of the word of God. You see how so many people in the church can be deceived by just little things that lead to major things? We've got half the church of Jesus Christ today in this country believing that it's okay to live any kind of lifestyle you want. Well, what does that say about the word of God as if it doesn't mean anything? What has happened to the integrity of the word of God? What has happened to a church that now is kowtowing to political correctness? And not realizing that we still have a God who is righteous and holy and just and true. The Bible tells us 
our God never changes. He's immutable. Our, our, our Bibles tell us that Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Sometimes it comes down to, well, should we be fair? No, we need to be holy. There's a big difference. We need to be set apart from the world and set apart in Christ. Set apart to Christ. Set apart from the world, set apart to Christ. Okay, so... Now comes one of the greatest escape stories in history. You remember how they surrounded Jesus? We talked about it last week. They, they, they just got all around him. And it, it, uh, they came round about him. And I said that, you know, it was like a gang of guys, just, you know, bumping up against Jesus. I mean, probably face to face with him. Well, with that in mind, look at verse 39. Even to the very last word that Jesus had given them, it says, therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. I guess the best word to use in that respect is poof. He was gone. And he could do that because he was Jesus. And it just wasn't time yet. It wasn't time. But he escaped out of their hand and he went again, away again, uh, beyond Jordan into the place where John had first baptized and there he abode. And many resorted unto him, which means many came to him and said, John did no miracle. They're telling Jesus this. John did no miracle, but all the things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. So as I said, obviously it wasn't Jesus' time yet. That, That would come about three or four months later. As I said, the cross is before Jesus at this point. Things had, to be, things had become very hostile in Jerusalem. So the Lord headed possibly to the area of Perea, which was beyond the Jordan. And he would remain there until the time of the Passover, when he would be the sacrificial lamb slain for the sins of the world. You know, the mention of John the Baptist here not doing any miracles is, is significant in that it substantiates Uh, the fact that miracles in the Gospels are always followed by the Word of God. Miracles in the Gospels are always followed by the Word of God. In other words, when miracles were in evidence, they they were always replaced by God's written Word. What I mean by that is this. For example, the the miracles performed in the times of Moses and, and Joshua, those gave way to the Torah. They gave way to the books of Moses. The miracles of Elijah and Elisha, gave way to the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and even the minor prophets. And the miracles of Jesus and even the miracles of the apostles gave way to the gospels and the epistles. Now that doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't work today. He, he very much works today in a great and, great and awesome way. I mean, let, let's think about the greatest miracle that that has taken place in our own lives. The very fact that we who were dead in trespasses and sins are now alive in Christ. That's a great miracle. 
We've been changed. But God still does great things today. He continues to show himself strong through the power of his Holy Spirit. His spiritual gifts are still in active use today. But what is important is this. In this statement, John performed no sign. He performed no miracle. But all the things that he spoke about Jesus were true. How could, how, I mean, could this, be, could this be said of us? It's said of John. The, the whole thing is John is... People are giving testimony of John, and they said, John didn't know miracle, but everything he said about Yeshua, everything he said about Jesus, about the Messiah, was true. I would want that to be said about you and about me. Could this be said of us at our home going? Could this be said about us? Somebody would get up one day to speak about us when we've gone home to be with the Lord. And they would say, well, they, yeah, this, he was a great person. Good person. He never performed miracles. Never did a single miracle. But they told me about Jesus Christ, which led me to know him for myself. I know Jesus because that person said everything truthfully about Jesus. And now I know Jesus. I want that testimony to be for every one of you. That someone would say that of you. They never did any miracle, but they told me about Jesus and it's all true. And now I know him myself. You see, God's word is living. It's powerful and it can and will transform lives just like his word did back then. And it's still working today. That's why we encourage you to stay in God's word. We give you as many helps as we can, like the Bible pathway and, and other uh, devotionals and whatever we can to get into your hands to say, keep studying the word of God. Stay in God's word. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Isaiah 55, verse 11 says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. This is, these are the words of God himself through the prophet Isaiah. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. That should be our testimony. God's word came and it, it invaded my life in a good invasion. <laughs> and it has changed me and it has accomplished what it came to do. It changed my life. Hearts may have been cold and hard in Jerusalem that December day, but they were very much open beyond the Jordan where many came to Jesus and believed. So let's remember this. It doesn't matter how intense the opposition we face may be. And we, we as believers in Jesus Christ are going to face those oppositions. We're facing them today. We're facing them not just from individuals in, in our country today. Now we're facing it from our country itself. 
even the government, the administration, targets Christians for many things. Am I worried? No. The Lord's work will go on and it will be done. Because God's on the throne. And Jesus is coming back. So don't be discouraged. Continue in the faith. Continue in believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. I'll tell you this, he hasn't let us down yet. Now, some people may think he has, but he hasn't. He's been true to his word. He said, I'll be with you always. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. I'll be with you to the end of the world and into the next. So if you'll use this as a, as a means of remembering what we need to be doing between now and the time of Jesus' return, then let's read it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. We'll close with this and we'll come to the table of communion with this. Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't ever think that what you do for Jesus Christ is in vain, that it's just worthless. It's not worthless. Keep serving the Lord. Stay in Jesus. Stay in his word. Stay in his service. And remember the words of Jesus himself. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return again. I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you will be also. Keep that in your hearts and in your minds. Let's pray.